Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. If you're using the Bibles and the benches, it can be found on page 1,639. Beginning there, 1,639. The right-hand side of the page near the bottom. We are nearing the end of Luke's Gospel, coming very near to the climax of the entire narrative. This morning, just uh, the first 25 verses of Luke chapter 23. (coughs) This is God's Word. Then the whole assembly rose and led Jesus off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Christ, a king. And so Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and to the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. And on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus... He was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied with him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. And then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. And dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. And that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people. And he said to them, look, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and I found no basis for your charges against him. And neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. And he has done nothing to deserve death. And therefore I will punish him and then release him. But with one voice they cried out, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. And Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. And wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! And for the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have punished him, or therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. So far the reading... 
of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ and dear friends, this story is about the conflict between these rogue outward authorities and the real authority. This story is about the conflict between merely outward powers and the real power. It's about the conflict between the Sanhedrin and Pontius Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch, unlikely bedfellows, mind you, between them and Jesus, who is the maker and the real ruler of the heavens and the earth. I mean, there is the Sanhedrin. There is the Sanhedrin here leading Jesus before Pilate. And what is the sphere of the Sanhedrin's power? Well, they're the ones, as we've seen over the past weeks, having been charged by God as the chief preservers and protectors and propagators of the Old Testament religion. They're the ones who had been charged by God to not only maintain and preserve the Word of God, but to bring it to the people. They are the ones who are to oversee the pure worship of God and the obedience of God among the Jewish people who had been given the law by God through Moses so many years before. This nation which was to be holy unto the Lord and to follow all of His ways and to be obedient all along to the law and to the prophets. This treasure had been committed to the Sanhedrin to organize the worship of God's people and even structure the society under their special arrangement as a a power ruled directly by God Himself from heaven. That kind of special country that Israel was designed to be. This was the charge of the Sanhedrin. And yet, as we've seen over and over again, when the one who gave to them the law at Mount Sinai and the one who comes Himself as fulfillment of all of the ceremonial laws and all of the prophecies that are contained in the Old Testament revelation, when He, Jesus Christ, comes to His own people, they reject Him. Instead of leading the people to Jesus, they lead people in opposition against Him. They are supposed to be the ones who are on the side of the Lord their God, on the side of true and godly religion and obedience to Christ, but instead, they have been exerting their power and their influence against Jesus. And you see the one main accusation that they are levying against him, hoping to gain the ears of the provincial Roman governor Pilate. You see this in in three places. Verse 2, first of all, they began to accuse Jesus, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. We have found him subverting our nation. We get more detail about that in verse 5. They insist that he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. It's reflected also in verse 14. You brought me this man, Pilate says, as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. What was the specific accusation that the Sanhedrin was making about Jesus? They were saying that he was a threat to the Roman rule over the people of Israel. 
Because he was supposedly, said the Sanhedrin, inciting the people of Israel up against the rulers of the Roman government that had charge over them. Now, of course, it should just smack us in the face how ridiculous this charge is. Not just because Jesus was not doing that. Of course, that's obviously true. But simply because the Sanhedrin themselves hated the Roman government so much. I mean, one of their chief delights was to cry out in the streets about how the pagan Roman Roman government was always oppressing them and taxing them so unjustly and how they couldn't wait for the day when Messiah would come to deliver them from the pagan Roman oppression that had been such a burden to them as those who felt they were the ones that should receive the honor and glory having been charged to rule over the people of Israel. I mean, they hated Caesar and the Roman government, but of course they come to Pilate, who was a representative of that government, to say that the problem with Jesus is that he is actually hating the Roman government, which isn't even true. The specific charges they levy against him there are listed uh, right there. What do they say? They begin to accuse him. We have found this man subverting our nation. Verse 2. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and he claims to be Christ a king. Now I want you to think about those two accusations. That first one, he opposes payments of taxes to Caesar. Now that is a flat lie, isn't it? Because we just heard a couple of weeks ago. When they asked Jesus about the tax money, they wanted to get him to say in public that people should not pay the tax money to Caesar. But what did he say? He said, give to Caesar what belongs to him. Give him his dumb tax money. I don't care. It doesn't concern me. That's not what I'm really concerned about. He directly told them that that wasn't true. Now, here they just lie to Pilate about what he's saying. Now that other charge, that he claims to be Christ a king, I want you to understand why they're telling Pilate this. They are saying that Christ claims to be a king not because Pilate cares at all about Jewish religious things. I mean, Pilate doesn't care one way or the other what the Jews think about the fulfillment of the prophecies that they have in the Old Testament. If somebody wants to say that Jesus or anybody else is the so-called Messiah of the Old Testament Scriptures, Pilate doesn't care because Pilate doesn't believe the Old Testament Scriptures to be the revelation of God like the Jews do. So when they are saying to Pilate, he claims to be Christ a king, what they are trying to get Pilate to think is that Jesus has some political agenda. That actually the reason that he came and the reason that he will allude to himself as a king and make himself the fulfillment of king-type prophecies of the Old Testament is really to overthrow any type of government that currently exists in Israel. Now, of course, they knew that Jesus didn't care to do this. And they had found out repeatedly, in fact, that Jesus was not interested in taking political power at this point in Israel. In fact, that's what frustrated them early on, right? Before they had come to this extreme point of trying to get him killed and calling on these external governors to support them in that cause, they had tried to woo him with the promises of power. Remember, they had invited him at a couple of points to dine with them and to participate in their 
particular sphere of oppression and authority over the people. But he wasn't interested in that. They knew this. They were simply threatened by his truthfulness. By his power. They were offended, weren't they, to Sanhedrin? When he told them that they were sinful against the law of God like everybody else was, and that they had no right to think that they were going to stand before God by their own obedience any more than anybody else, and that they did not have a right to maintain their system of oppression over the people, and to make up their own laws and impose them on the Jewish people in the name of God. They had had enough of him. They had had enough of him. And you know, it's interesting that also the Sanhedrin is willing to go before Herod. I mean, look in verse 10. The chief priests and the teachers of the law. This is after Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing Jesus there in front of Herod. Now, I want you to think about the relationship between the Sanhedrin and Herod and his family. The father of this particular Herod is the one who had rebuilt the temple in all of its glorious splendor. But you know what he did after he rebuilt the temple? And, of course, the Sanhedrin was delighted that the temple was rebuilt. But you know what Herod did, the father of the Herod in this story? Herod the Great. He took a Roman symbol of power and glory, the eagle, and he placed it inside the temple. Which to a Jew is one of the highest forms of blasphemy. You don't come into the temple of the Lord God and put in its midst a symbol of Caesar who believed that he himself was an earthly manifestation of God which to the Jews, and rightfully so, was called idolatry. And here was Herod the Great using all of his wealth and riches to build the temple and then to place in the midst of that temple a symbol of paganism. Idolatry. When God says, I am the Lord your God, you shall worship and serve me alone. And Herod, who is a man of Jewish blood, Herod the Great, brings this eagle into the temple that's despised by the Sanhedrin. But you know what Herod the Great did to those representatives of the Sanhedrin? The henchmen of the Sanhedrin who went into the temple and ripped out the eagle? Herod the Great had them slaughtered. He had them slaughtered. And listen, that's just the tip of the iceberg of the conflict between Herod the Great and Herod's sons, one of them being Herod the Tetrarch who is alive in this story. Tip of the iceberg of the conflict between the Herods and the Sanhedrin. And yet the Sanhedrin has no problem taking the authority and the power that God has indeed given to them and corrupting it and twisting it. And attacking and seeking to kill the one who granted them that authority in the first place. Then there's Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. And we have to ask the question, what is the sphere of Pontius Pilate's? Power. Well, as we said, he is the Roman provincial governor. And you've heard this before also, that this is how the Roman government ruled in those days. There were particular regions, and some of them very strong and culturally connected and traditional, such as the Jews. And the Romans knew that it was crazy for them 
to rule directly over those people because otherwise there would be an immediate rebellion. You can't change a people's ways. So they would appoint certain regional rulers over those people. Certain people who would be able to give them a certain measure of independence but make sure that they would receive the proper amount of tax revenue from that region. And Pontius Pilate was this Roman provincial governor over Israel. Now he's supposed, he is supposed to be, if you look at it from God's perspective, right? He is supposed to be an earthly ruler who would seek justice in the land. Romans 13, you know, all authorities are established by God to do you good. He's speaking of the government. Authorities are established by God to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant. Pilate was an earthly magistrate. He was God's servant who should have been an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. But for those who did good, he would commend them. I mean, obviously Pilate had been given by God, had been placed, established in authority over the territory of Israel to seek the good. To bear the sword of the Roman government against evildoers. To protect those who do good. But just like the Sanhedrin, Pilate takes his God-given authority and he perverts it. He uses it for unjust ends. Because you see in the story, even when Pilate recognizes that Jesus is being falsely accused, and Pilate is confronted over and over with that, that, that truth, that Jesus is righteous, and he has no reason to condemn him, even when Pilate recognizes that, he does not defend him. All Pilate does, very obviously, is try to keep everyone happy. All Pilate is concerned about is keeping his own political status, maintaining his material wealth, maintaining the sphere of influence that he thinks he has. Of course, he's being pulled in different directions. He's a puppet. But he doesn't care about that. He just wants to preserve peace where there is no peace. And the picture emerges of a man who is unwilling to do what is right, even when another man's life is on the line. I mean, you see that he has no less than three opportunities to acquit the innocent man. He's a magistrate. That's what God has put him in his position to do, to defend those who are right from being falsely accused. Look at verse 3. The first time he interviews Jesus and... When Luke records this story, he doesn't give us a lot of the details. But if you went to the Gospel of John, a few more of the details of this initial interview are mixed in. But the interview isn't very substantial. What you'll find if you look at that, and that's maybe one reason why Luke doesn't record the details of it here, is because he's not really interested in the truth. I mean, he's just interviewing him to go through the process and to say that he did it. Are you king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against him. But they insisted. Now you see right there, if Pilate is already convinced that there is no basis for the charge, then he should acquit him, right? I mean, that should be the end of the story. And he should repel the pressure of the Sanhedrin. But he doesn't do that. See, they insist. And they say that he's stirring people up. And so what does he do in verse 6? He asked the man if he was a Galilean. 
And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sends him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now I want you to think about this. Why would he ask him if he was a Galilean? Well, it's because there was this other guy, Herod the Tetrarch, who had some semblance of power among the Jews. Now we'll speak more about him in a minute. But suffice to say, as the scripture makes clear in verse 12, Herod and Pilate, before the time of this story, were not friends. Because Herod and his family had been around a long time among the Jewish people. And they were strange because they were Jews by blood. But they had always acted like Romans. They were always coming back and forth to Rome and securing some support of the Roman government to claim some kind of authority among the Jewish people. Herod and his family were very wealthy, so they were always able to buy off the right people and maintain some sort of kingship, although it was just a figurehead-type title. But because of the money and influence they had, they did have a certain degree of political power among the people. But you see, what Pilate is looking for is somebody to do the dirty work for him, but somehow preserve his innocence. You see, because if he sends Jesus over to Herod, he can get a Jewish opinion that Jesus is indeed causing insurrection, and then somehow if he has to give account to somebody later, he can say, well, it was Herod is the one who condemned this Jesus, not me. I'm just going through the proper channels. I got caught up in the political mess. I mean, the real thing that Pilate is worried about is that however he handles this situation, it is going to cause some kind of a riot or a big stirring up, a big division in the community, one way or the other. And then that's going to raise the ire of the Roman governor who's going to tell Pilate, how come you can't keep the Jews under control? So all he's doing is looking for some way to keep everything quiet, and if everything can't be kept quiet, then he's going to find an answer that he can give later to protect his own hide. That's what he's doing. Same thing, verses 12 through 16, the day Herod and Pilate become friends. Pilate calls the chief priests and the rulers together, says, you bring me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him and found no basis for your charges against him. Look, there it is again. Here is another opportunity for him to stand and do his job and to acquit the innocent. But does he do it? No. He says, Herod hasn't found anything either. Look in verse 16. Therefore I will punish him and then release him. I will punish him and then release him. Think about what he's trying to do politically. He's ignoring the reality of the situation, which is Jesus needs to be defended. And what he's doing is he's going to take this custom that the Romans had instituted, which is about the time of the Passover, one of the Jewish criminals who was imprisoned by the Romans for their own rebellion would be what? He would be released. He would be pardoned. We have the same practice in legal systems today. It's called pardon. Something you have been convicted for. But then you will be pardoned as a symbol of peace from the government to the people. That's exactly what Rome had done customarily on the great Jewish day of Passover. And here Pilate thinks of that as a way out of the situation. Because then he can clearly say that Jesus was guilty. He can give him a small measure of punishment and beating, but then release him. So everybody will be happy. My conscience will be clear. 
and the Jews will not be angry with me. That's all he cares about. He cares about protecting his own hide and keeping everybody at peace. Of course, there's no peace. He does not acquit Jesus. Twenty uh, Verses 20 and following. I mean, ultimately, what does he do? Verse 23, loud shouts, they insistently demand that Jesus be crucified. And so Pilate finally decides in verse 24 to grant their demand. He decides in the face of obvious evidence, something that he spoke at least three times, that Jesus was innocent, something that was confirmed to him somehow by what Herod, how Herod gave Jesus back to him, doesn't matter. Cares more about his own political career than he does about fulfilling his calling. This rogue authority. And quickly, there's Herod the Tetrarch also. There's Herod the Tetrarch. He's the figurehead regional king. He's a petty prince. He comes from a long line of Jewish money, but over the years achieved great architectural triumphs in the community. They were respected, maybe not personally, but they were respected for their power and influence. You know that the Sanhedrin could not resist, could not resist money. So obviously they would at times, even though, like we said, they were always at odds with Herod and were slaughtered by him at points because he wouldn't tolerate him calling them to account for his paganism. They would suck up to him also. In spite of all that, Herod's family was known for their immorality. There were two things that mattered to Herod the Great and his sons. It was money and it was sex. They were notorious in this part of the world for their worldly exploits. And it's no wonder that Herod then responds with the little uh, political influence that he's been granted in this case. He takes a a common sinner's interest in Jesus. I mean, look at verse 8. He sees Jesus. He was greatly pleased. Why? Because he was delighted to now submit himself to the Lord of the universe who made him... No, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He wanted Jesus to be the circus act for him. Because Herod who was a man of immorality, had heard about all of these wonderful things. I mean, he had heard about Jesus walking around and coming to people who were chronically ill and healing them. He heard about people uh, coming carrying coffins and Jesus laying his hand on a coffin and saying, Rise, get up and walk. And the person walking up and getting away. Paralytics who could not walk. Being brought to Jesus on the mat. Touched and healed. Jesus creating fish in a lake where there was no fish. He had heard about all of this. And as a worldly man, he's just interested in it. Just like thousands of people today would be interested in Jesus if he was walking around today and heard stories about him working miraculous things. Has no interest in the fact that that displays Jesus as the glorious Lord of the creation. Doesn't care about that. He has no interest in recognizing and confessing his sin. I mean, like when Peter saw Jesus create fish in the lake, what was Peter's response? 
Peter said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Because he recognized that he was in the presence of the Lord. The one who not only was so powerful to manipulate all of the creation which he had made. But the one who therefore was holy and perfect and righteous. And who exposes just by being in our presence our own sin. And failures and shame and guilt. And Peter said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. That is not why Herod the Tetrarch wanted to see Jesus. He wanted a dog and pony show. Now, of course, Jesus does not humor him. In fact, Herod plied him, the text says, with many questions. In verse 9, Jesus does not even answer him. It's interesting, you think about how Jesus answered people's questions along the way through the Gospel. He would always answer people who had a serious question for him, didn't he? I mean, even people who opposed him, he would answer them when they asked him direct questions about who he was. Now, he may answer them cryptically. He did that quite a few times. And he had his reasons for that. But you notice it's significant that Jesus did not speak to him here. He did not speak to him here because he was just mocking Jesus with the questions. Herod does not care. Herod has never cared about the law of God. He certainly doesn't care when Christ himself, God himself, comes to confront him. Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Verse 11, they dressed him in an elegant robe and they sent him back to Pilate. Jesus refused to be a circus act, so they turned him into one. They ridiculed and mocked him, just like the guards did, as we read in the story last week. If you're God, we're going to blindfold you and smack you across the face, and then you're going to tell us who smacked you. And this is likely exactly the same kind of thing that Herod and his soldiers did. They ridiculed him and mocked him and put a fake kingly robe on him. You know, Herod and his followers, they're like the mob. Okay, they will, they'll get a government official, whether he's actually in political power or not, and they'll bring him in and mock him and tell him, that he is in charge, but remind him that they are the ones that are controlling his destiny. And Herod really believes that, doesn't he? And Pilate really believes that, doesn't he? And the Sanhedrin really believes all that, don't they? That they are the powers that are going to determine whether Jesus lives or dies. These are the world powers that are in conflict with the true power. And this conflict between them and Jesus culminates in the identification of Jesus as worse than an obviously guilty, violent criminal Barabbas. This man Barabbas, we don't have the details, but he led some kind of insurrection in Israel, some kind of a riot, and he was actually found guilty of murdering at least one person, likely quite a few people in the course of this riot he was obviously guilty and the Romans and the Jews and everyone could agree on this and yet the conflict between the Sanhedrin and Pilate and Herod and Jesus results in Jesus being identified as the real criminal and the question 
that we have to ask as we conclude our look at this story is why in the world doesn't the real authority exercise his power and authority to deliver himself from the oppression of these wicked unrighteous men I mean why doesn't he stand to defend himself and say no I will not be led off to death in the place of one who is obviously guilty I will not allow you, Sanhedrin, who are supposed to be the protectors of true religion, to violate in the worst way true religion. And I will not let you, Pilate, who have been established in this region by my father for the protection of common good in society, to condemn an innocent man and no Herod, I will not let you, I don't care how much money and influence and violent power you have, I will not let you overrun the society with this kind of injustice and violence and put me to death. I will not allow it. Why doesn't he say this? Why doesn't he do this? The apostles are reflecting themselves when they are under persecution later on this incident, on this story. And they say in Acts chapter 4, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Heavenly Father. And they did, here's your answer, they did what your power, Heavenly Father, and your will had decided beforehand should happen. When Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, he says, Men of Israel, listen. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs. And this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. The reason why Jesus does not exercise his power to overthrow the evil powers, the rogue oppressing powers, the reason why he refuses to defend himself as the righteous one, the reason why he submits himself to the handing over of Pilate to the Jews to be crucified, is because that's the will of the Father for him. That's the will of the Heavenly Father for him. Why? It's the will of the Heavenly Father for him because the Father has looked at the fallen human race and he has seen the sin and the rebellion that is in all of us that has alienated us from our Father. And he has seen that man would think that there is something now that he can do to work his way back to God to somehow be obedient and get himself back in the good graces of God. And what does God say to that? Like in Galatians 3.10, He says, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. But I look at mankind, the Father says, and I see that you all stand under a curse because none of you will be obedient. None of you are willing no longer even able morally to do the things of the law which are required to be right with me. 
And you are on the path to ultimate destruction. And so I will send Jesus. I will decide that he, though innocent, will come into the world and be condemned by world powers. And he will be identified with a common criminal. Why? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on the tree. This is why Jesus did not exercise his authority and his power to deliver himself. Because he was going to the cross to be cursed in our place. We are Barabbas. We are the criminals in God's universe who deserve the condemnation that Christ received. We are the Sanhedrin, religious hypocrites. We are Pontius Pilate, the ones who are only concerned about saving face. We are Herod the Tetrarch, the only people who care about fulfilling our own pride and lusts. And Christ comes and identifies himself as the one who deserves to be cursed when he in fact is the only one who is righteous. Let me apply this to us briefly in two ways. First of all, you have to understand this again. And you have to set aside any self-confidence that you have and acknowledge that you and I live in a world where we owe obedience to the Creator and we have rebelled against Him and we're a terrible enmity with Him and our only hope is in Christ and His blood. And I don't care if it's your first time hearing that or your hundred thousandth time. But again, be convicted of your sin and of the glorious sacrifice that Christ made to reconcile you to the Father. And secondly, keeping with the theme that we heard last week, live your life as a Christian in light of the cross. The cross is not about entitlement. The cross is not about making us happy and fulfilled and satisfied. The cross is about calling us to a life of humble repentance and obedience and service. And of growth in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus from His Word. And of love to Him and to our neighbors. And to that all God's people said, Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Christ and His grace. And we thank You that He was willing to Submit himself to the oppression of the rogue authorities and to be identified as a common criminal, a murderer, for the sake of us. And would you give us your grace to see our sin and our need for him and to embrace the glories of him who died for his people. We ask in Christ's name alone. Amen.